Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Woody Allen once said that the world was divided into two groups, the horrible and the miserable. Let's play a quick clip. I have a very pessimistic view of life. You should know this about me if we're going to go out. You know, I, I feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those are the two categories, you know. The, uh, the horrible would be like, um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. and cripples. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. You know, and the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable because that's, you're very lucky to, to be miserable. To answer Woody Allen's existential question, of how people in this horrible category get through life. The answer is usually hope. But the form that that hope takes can vary widely. Sometimes it grows out of faith, sometimes out of denial, and sometimes out of science. This is often true, be it real cutting-edge science or the placebo that is most Western medicine. My guest, author and journalist Richard Cohen, has lived with conditions that Woody Allen would call horrible. Yet through his writing and his voice, He has not only defined his hope, he has given it to others. And so it is once again in his new book, Chasing Hope. Richard Cohn is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Blindsided, detailing his struggle with MS and cancer, and Strong at the Broken Places, which follows the lives of five individuals living with serious chronic illness. His new book is Chasing Hope. A Patient's Deep Dive into Stem Cells, Faith, and the Future. It is my pleasure to welcome Richard Cohen back to this program. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. One of the things that that you really point out is is some of the difference in hope between things that really are, and and we'll talk more about this, kind of cutting-edge science, cutting-edge medical developments like stem cell research, which is really at at the heart of what you talk about, and, and kind of the hope, the placebo of hope that is part of kind of traditional Western medicine. Talk a little about that first. Well, I I knew absolutely nothing about stem cells, uh, about that area of medicine. You know, I had it in the back of my mind that it was sort of futuristic, that it was some somewhere down the road and maybe someday, maybe not even in my lifetime, uh, you know, it would become a part of treatment. And in in 2013, my wife and I went to the Vatican. We were invited to participate in a stem cell conference. Uh, the Vatican, of course, is opposed to uh, embryonic uh, stem cells. But most stem cells today uh, in in the world of medical research are adult cells. And, uh, and the, the movement is toward... Uh, using your own cells, uh, what they call autologous cells. And when you use your own cells, uh, it's preferable just because it minimizes the risks. So that's uh, why the Vatican had the conference to get out from under that uh, controversy. So here we are at the Vatican. I chaired the opening panel, which was on autoimmune diseases. I knew very little about the subject but I knew a lot about the illnesses and the experience of being sick. And um, scientists and opinion leaders from all over the world were there, uh, people of all races, religions, and um, they shared a lot of knowledge. And what I learned gave me um, the, first, the literally the first pangs of hope 
I had known as a uh, as an adult when I realized that uh, this was something not just other people were doing, but maybe I could somehow get into it. And, you know, there was a lot of time spent with people talking in small groups, and every part of me wanted to go up to everybody I met and say, excuse me, would you treat me? And, of course, it doesn't exactly work that way. But I was lucky enough to uh, run into uh, uh, another participant who was a neurologist who uh, who I sort of just vaguely knew, uh, but from New York, and... Um, I told him I was very interested in self-therapy, and, and he said, come and see me when we get back to New York. And I'm telling you, 48 hours later, I was sitting in his office in Midtown, and I decided to become his patient, and uh, the FDA approved a clinical trial, and I was the first person literally in the world to be treated uh, with this particular uh, kind of stem cell. So... Lord, you just talk about hope. You just never know where it's going to take you. How was that hope different from the kind that you had heard from doctors before about about your MS and about other diseases? When when doctors sometimes tend to be hopeful, how was this different? You know, I've heard doctors talk so much about my, about hope. Uh, you know, I want to check my back pocket to see if my wallet's still there. It, uh, uh, that's not fair because it's well-intentioned, but it, it was hollow. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, I, I decided that uh, hope was something that clergymen and doctors talked about when they had nothing better to offer. But this was, this was real in my mind. This was... This was people taking action. This was people taking chances. This was people trying to take control. And uh, all of the, those had tremendous appeal to me. You know, and, and when I agreed to be the first one in the world to be treated with this particular cell, stem cell, uh, a number of people asked me if I had any qualms about doing it. And I immediately said, no, none. You know, you can't be risk-averse. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor, you know, it's an opp- opportunity. It's an honor to do something, uh, to be able to do something that, ha- that might help future generations. And um, I, I never had a second thought about it. How much did you feel you had to get up to speed or know about the science behind this? And how much of it was an element of trust in this doctor? Well, it was both. It was both. I mean, it's a long process because, you know, they, they, harbor, they harvest, this sounds pretty horrible, but it's not. They uh, dig into your, deep into your chest, your sternum, and and uh, take out bone marrow, aspirate it out, um, because that's where these particular stem cells reside. And um, you know, and it, it's a uh, it looks like a horrible process, but um, you know, and then you wait three or four months because it, it's in a lab, it's being treated. I mean, it's refrigerated. You know, you go into very 
temp- temperature-regulated areas. You know, you have to be sterile. I was allowed back there um, with the proper dress because I was writing about this in my blog. And um, by the time I actually, you know, this went on for six months before I uh, was actually treated. And, um, you know, I, I went in there not with any particular expectations, but very hopeful that something was going to change. Mm-hmm. At what point did you think that, that this really might make a difference once the treatment started? Well, I, I had a little bit of bad luck because uh, one month after the treatment started, um, I had a, a life-threatening blood clot. Uh, on my lung, in my lungs, a pulmonary embolism that uh, ki- kills a lot of people. And um, and when I got to the ICU unit and I told the the doctors about the sensations that I had and the fact that I almost, you know, couldn't walk, you know, nine weeks early uh, earlier. Um, they they said that they were surprised that I was still alive, and uh, that set me back quite a bit. And so I, the the neurologist thinks that um, that my body took such a beating from from the uh, pulmonary embolism that it, it blunted a lot of the the possibilities for the stem cells, which is why I'm going to go and and. Uh, the FDA has approved a second phase, and uh, I'm going to take part in that and just just see if it uh, does anything. What impact did all of this have, and you, you talk a bit about this, what impact did all of this have on, on what had been the traditional treatments that you had been going through? Well, it didn't really have much of an impact on the treatments themselves. The fact is, by coincidence, I had just, you know, maybe three weeks or so before the the idea of being going into this going to this conference came up. I'd gone to one of my neurologists and said, you know what, I'm not doing it anymore. It just it, the, the, the traditional treatments just don't do anything for me. I've I tried everything. I was even on really vicious chemotherapy. For um, the better part of a year, I lost lost my hair. It made me sick. Uh, you know, I I tried everything and um, nothing really worked. And uh, but I put the 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 cell therapy into a totally separate category. And um, and you know, even even in the wake of all the disasters, I was hopeful. And boy, was that a new sensation for me. Talk about that, how it was new, and how it impacted your, your, your quality of life because you had this hopefulness. It, it was very hard to explain. It is hard to explain, but it was hard for me to understand because it was like, it, it really was something I had never, it was like a new sensation. I mean, I, I felt upbeat. I felt unburdened. I felt uh, that I was open to possibility. I 
I didn't fall, I did not fall into the trap of playing the expectation game. I mean, people who do that um, uh, are very often sorely disappointed and often hurt by it because you, if you have specific expectations, you know, if I thought that I was going to regain the, all of the vision that I lost, you know, that I was going to be able to drive a car again or play tennis again or hike up a mountain again, um, I, I would have I been very disappointed because none of those things happened. It, um, you know, my progress, I mean, some people got out of wheelchairs in this trial. Uh, I think because of these other issues I talked about, my, you know, my results were not nearly as dramatic. Um, but I did have some positive results. But I, I'm, I'm, I've never regretted doing it, you know, and I will do it again if I can. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised that that you didn't have any regrets about it? That that you felt really secure in taking this risk? No, I really wasn't surprised. I mean, it. Uh, I I didn't see it as particularly risky. I mean, my neurologist kept sitting me down mm-hmm. and going over the risks again, again, again and again with me. And, and getting me to um, to really think about it and and make sure that I was comfortable with it because I don't think he wanted me to have any regrets. Um, and it was it was it was easy. It was uh, I, I was so upbeat going into this thing, and uh, and again without any particular specific expectations, but just the idea of improving my life was very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. There's also this element, and you touched on it a bit before, of kind of the the whole mind-body connection, that that having hope and feeling that hope for the first time is is almost a a part of of the improvement. It's part of, of the process itself in some ways, whether it is technically or not. Oh, that's very true. I mean, uh, a couple of me- a couple of medical schools, uh, including Harvard Medical School, have done studies that uh, show that people who have hope or faith, either one, they did it with both, um, have better uh, find better results uh, from their treatments and. A lot of, and, and any doctor will tell you, uh, any good doctor will tell you that uh, the, the more hopeful and, and confident a, a patient is, uh, the better his or her chances of, of recovery are. I think, uh, I think it's very well understood that attitude plays a tremendous uh, role in, uh, in the healing process. Talk a little bit about what you see as the difference between hope and faith. Well, I'm not a person of faith, and um, and yet I'm a person of hope. I uh, some religions tie the two together, and and believe that without faith there can be no hope. 
uh, one clergyman, let's not talk about specific religions, but one clergyman uh, said to me when I was writing the book that um, hope without faith is an empty hope. And I thought to myself, no, that can't be true. That's just not true. But for people who really are serious uh, religious people, I think they do believe that. There's nothing There's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't apply to everybody. I, I, I think hope and faith are very different. Um, I think that uh, you can have hope if, if you've got the right, you know, it's almost like it's in your DNA. You know, that it uh, it just comes naturally. It just, uh, as I said before, it's just organic. It just grows by itself. And um, and it just doesn't require faith. You know, I, I, if, if you don't believe in organized religion, uh, as I don't, uh, it doesn't mean in any way that you can't uh, know hope. Did you find any pushback along the way from from traditional doctors or from anybody else that that really pushed back against either you doing this or or was more skeptical about it? There was a there was a bit of skepticism, but no nobody pushed back. I mean, I think everybody in medicine recognizes the the possibilities. You know, there are some people in medicine who think this is the future and others who think this is a positive, you know, a positive thing. I've never heard anybody say anything negative about it. Um, I just think that uh, there's a wide range of uh, views on how effective and important it, it is or, or is going to be. And, um, but you know when when you when you read a, accounts of people they're, they're growing organs uh, organs in in laboratories that come, come that come from stem cells because stem cells are blank cells meaning they can morph into anything you know wherever wherever they need it and um, people are are in laboratories are, are making body parts out of stem cells. And um, I just don't see how anybody can deny the potential. You know, we're not there yet. We're, you know, in historic terms, we're re- remarkably co- close to the starting line. You know, I mean, this is a relatively new technology and um, I, I'm not going to live long enough to to see it work to its full potential. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that anybody who is alive today will see uh, it uh, at its full potential. But I think it's moving very quickly. And, uh, you know, and I, I think if I came, come back and visit you, uh, let's say in, in 10 years, we'll have a very different conversation. That is really, I, I, I would think, the most remarkable thing about this, looking into the future of this, thinking about it in terms of the timing, and realizing that things like you were talking about chemotherapy before, that 10 years, 20 years, certainly 30, 40, 50 years from now, we'll look back on something like chemotherapy 
the way we look back on leeching now, that, that it'll That's just be exactly something so thinking. primitive. Now you're right. I mean, I mean there, there, are, there are procedures that I had as a young MS patient that are already viewed as prehistoric, you know, and they don't do anymore. Um, I think that uh, I think that uh, cell therapy is literally going to change the face of medicine. And I, you know, I I have kids uh, from 30 down, and um, I think they're going to live to see uh, tremendous strides and um, and things that we can't even imagine. I'm not saying that they're going to see it the full potential either, but they're going to see a lot more than I'm going to see. And uh, I think that's pretty exciting. It also, I, I suppose, makes it difficult for doctors in some respects because you have, if you're aware of all of this, you have to take the attitude with, with traditional medicine that if something is the protocol today, it's already old-fashioned. You know, you, what's new? What's out? Because the protocol is already outdated. Well, there's some truth to that, and it's, it's, it's made true in part because the process of winning FDA approval for drugs and device, medical devices is extraordinarily long. I mean, one of the common criticisms in medicine of the FDA is that though obviously we want to be protected, uh, we want the public to be protected uh, on questions of um, drugs and devices, it is so, it takes so long and it takes so much, so much money, the resources that go into winning approval. It can take, it can take a decade to win approval for a new drug and believe it or not, uh, from the very beginning to winning approval can cost up to a billion dollars. That's a billion with a B. And uh, it's too long and it's too expensive. Do you think that's going to change? Do you sense that, that from the people that you talk to in this world that that's going to change or is it can, that going to stay the same? I think it's going to change because I think things are going to develop so quickly that, um, that they're going to streamline the process. They, they have to. It's just, it's just insane, especially with a population that's just getting sicker. I mean, we're, we're very quickly becoming the oldest population in the history of the country. Uh, chronic illnesses uh, are tied to age. Uh, almost half the population literally has at least one chronic illness. The need is so strong for new drugs, new therapies, and including cell therapies, that it would be irresponsible, I think, not for the FDA not to string, streamline the appro pro approval process and get these new uh, therapies to people faster. Of course, the other part of it that will ha will drive that, I suppose, is the fact that this is a global phenomenon at this point. And if it's not going to happen faster here, it'll happen somewhere else. Yeah, and and uh, the the approval process in other places is not as rigorous as it is here. 
Oh, I'll tell you, a lot of people um, go to to uh, other countries to get some treatments because they can't get them here. Is that something you you had ever looked at? No, because I, um, I'm, you know, if I'm critical of the FDA, I'm skeptical of going to a uh, uh, another country, not knowing anything about. Um, their standards and not knowing anything about their uh, approval process that uh, I, I just don't want to do anything reckless. I, I'm not in a position to know what's reckless or not reckless. Do you think that you'll have as much hope for this uh, new round of treatment, for this new uh, procedures? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been up and down on hope for so long, and, uh, and I've had so many problems that it's a little hope is a, hope can be pretty fragile, and um, and it, it can be if it's tough to find hope, it it's tougher to hold on to it. So I don't know how to, how to answer it. If I if I ever if I do another round. And if I ever see results, um, you know, I, I will be hugely hopeful. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of uh, idling in neutral right now. I'm not sure of where it's going to take me. And um, I'm in a wait-and-see mode. Richard M. Cohen, his book is Chasing Hope, a patient's deep dive into stem cells, faith, and the future. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much.